Well, please uh, bow your heads with me. Um, Heavenly Father, we come before you in worship and praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, so that all might joyfully sing and serve you with gladness. We ask that you'd provide for us our daily bread. You know what it is that we need, whether it's physical or spiritual, and we trust you to provide. Help us to know that you, Lord, are the God who made us, that you sustain and provide for us, and that we are your people in Christ. And Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That's a scary prayer. It can be hard to forgive. But God, you have forgiven us in Christ. Help us to forgive those who have sinned against us. We pray that you would keep us from temptation and that when we are tempted, that we would not sin against you. As the psalmist says, let us enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise, giving thanks to you and blessing your name. For Lord, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. Your faithfulness to all generations. God, we intercede with you on behalf of our community, our families, ourselves. Be glorified in us and our children through your Holy Spirit. Be with us as we seek you in your word. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, today we are beginning a new series called Kings and Kingdoms based on First and Second Kings. Uh, question, what do First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah have to do with each other? Well, they are all historical books in the Old Testament. And in particular, they are historical books in the Old Testament tell the history of the kingdom of Israel. In this series, we're going to be dipping into these books so that we can better understand uh, our biblical history. And so we ask, why should we care about biblical history? Well, last week I mentioned a redemptive thread that weaves its way through scripture and it reaches its goal in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, recognizing how this redemptive thread weaves through the book, the books of the Bible, will help us to understand our Bibles better and deepen our faith. And this series will help us to connect the dots between the Old Testament and our Christian faith. This will be very helpful, I believe. So uh, let me ask, uh, how much do you know about the Old Testament already? How's your uh, Old Testament knowledge? Uh, anybody up for another trivia quiz? I, I heard from a couple people they enjoyed those, so we'll, uh, we'll go with that. Um, and, and by the way, this is open book, so if you have your Bibles with you, you might actually want that this time. Um, so, uh, first question, uh, what is the last verse in the book of Judges? And you can say it out loud if you've got it. Now you got to say it loud enough to hear it, Dan. Yeah, in those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That sort of summarizes the book of Judges. All right, so second question, what is the very last word in the book of Ruth? David, David he got it already. That's awesome. That's good. I'm not going to do open book next time. Uh, and this one, you're not going to be able to look up, but uh, who was the ideal king in the Old Testament? David. David, yeah. Or it's, it's David all the way down, that's the answer here. And then, um, 
Next, so the bonus question, we're going to go for the bonus question here. Who was the first king of Israel? Um, was it Samuel? Was it Saul? Was it David? Or was it none of the above? Oh, I heard uh, Saul and none of the above. If it's none of the above, uh, if, if that's your answer, then who, who was it? God, well, yeah, we heard God. All right, so here, here, this actually is sort of a trick question here. So, so the way this one works out is that Saul is the first human king in the Old Testament, and God is the first actual king in the Old Testament. Um, Israel was based on a theocracy. It was uh, God was to be their king, um, but eventually they asked for a human king. Now, um, I'm going to just walk back through what we just talked about with, and, and the reason why I would ask each of these questions. So um, the reason why I would ask about the last verse in the book of Judges is this. If you have ever read through the book of Judges, by the time you get done, you go, oh, thank God that book is done because it is terrible. It's really ugly. It's, uh, it's terrible what happens. This is the period of history that happens after Israel gets established and all these terrible things happen. And then finally we get the summary, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, sort of like the Lord of the Flies, and because there was no king in Israel. And so the expectation or the question at the end of the book of Judges um, is, well, will the people do what's right in God's eyes, and will there be a king? And then the second um, book is the book of Ruth, which actually occurs historically during the time of Judges. It's sort of a little expanded narrative, and it's a beautiful book, only, only four chapters, you can read it really soon. Um, and, but the, the point of the book is that there's a kinsman redeemer named Boaz, um, who plays the Christ-like figure. And then there is the widow, Ruth, who ends up becoming um, in the line, Boaz and Ruth become in the line of King David. And so that ends up being the last word in the book of Ruth. So David uh, is going to fulfill this need for a king. And then um, why do I ask about David as the ideal king? Well, that's actually going to be the focal point of the message today. But did you know that the, the name David shows up in scripture 1,078 times? It's a very important name in all of scripture, the Old and New Testament. And the bonus question, uh, why did I ask about Israel's first king? Well, as I mentioned, Israel was a theocracy, so it, um, it, God was to be their king. And, and yet, and it was anticipated in the Pentateuch that Israel would ask for a king, and there were stipulations put there on what the king ought to do and how he ought to act. But when Israel asked for a king, they were actually asking for a king like all the other nations. So they ended up with, Saul, who was a king like all the other nations. And then when we receive David as king, David is God's choice for Israel as king. So all of these questions help to provide context for uh, First and Second Kings. Now we all start out with a, a little different Bible knowledge uh, here, and we're entering a, a, a section of the Old Testament that some may be more familiar with than others. So we're actually going to take um, time and watch a video. Uh, it's from the Bible Project, and I really commend these videos to you. They they will provide a, a, an overview for several of the books of the Bible. So if there's something you're really wondering, how does this whole book fit together? Well, you can watch one of these short videos and get, a, get a, an idea of it. So this is a short video on First and Second Kings. I, I uh, hope you enjoy it. 
The books of First and Second Kings, although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. The book opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel, and he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now, if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is breaking breaking every one. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. 
Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together, these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so in a famous story, Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both build altars and pray to their gods, but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice and he announces the downfall of his house. Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his prophetic leadership to a young disciple named Elisha, who asks for two times the authority of Elijah. And what's fascinating here is how the author, he's recounted seven miraculous feats for Elijah, and then he offers stories of 14 acts of power from Elijah. Both prophets were clearly remarkable men, and they played the same role, confronting Israel's kings for idolatry and injustice. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy. In the next section, the northern kingdom is rocked by a bloody revolution started by a king named Jehu, who destroys Ahab's family. And although Jehu was at first commissioned by God, his violence just gets out of control, and it creates the spiral of political assassinations and rebellions from which Israel never recovered. Coup follows coup after Jehu, and each king follows other gods, allows horrible injustice. It all leads up to 2 Kings chapter 17. The the big bad empire of Assyria swoops down and takes out the northern kingdom altogether. In the capital city of Samaria, it's conquered and the Israelites are exiled and scattered throughout the ancient world. Now chapter 17 is key. The author stops the story and offers this prophetic reflection on what's just happened. He blames the downfall of the northern kingdom on the idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness of Israel and its kings. And so God has allowed them to face the consequences of their decision. The final movement of the book tells the story of the lone southern kingdom. And here we meet some very heroic kings like Hezekiah, who trusts God when the armies of Assyria come knocking on Jerusalem's door. Or Josiah, who discovers this lost scroll of the Torah in the temple. So he starts reading it. He's convicted and he institutes religious reforms to remove idolatry and Canaanite influences from the land. But 
Judah is just too far gone. The king, right in between these two, Manasseh, he's the worst by far. So he not only introduces the worship of idol statues into the Jerusalem temple, he also institutes child sacrifice. And so God sends prophets to say, the time is up. Israel has reached the point of no return. The final chapters tell the story of the Babylonian Empire coming to invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry the people and the royal line of David off into exile. And so the story ends leaving us wondering, is God done with Israel? Is he done with the line of David? Well, the final paragraph zooms about 40 years forward into the exile, and it tells a very odd story. It's about Jehoiakim, a descendant from David, who would have been king if he was back in Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and the book ends. So it's not much, but it's a story that gives a glimmer of hope that God has not abandoned the line of David. So the question now is, how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David? How is he going to bless the nations and bring the messianic kingdom? And to answer those questions, you have to read on into the wisdom and the prophetic books. But for now, that's the book of Kings. You got that down? It's a uh... Those videos, by the way, are online. You can look them up. It's a Bible project. Um, so if you're interested in kind of revisiting that, uh, it could be really helpful. Um, and, and we're going to be doing sort of the 30,000-foot view on these books, on these historical books. We're not going to be uh, getting into the weeds too much. But this would be a great time on your private Bible reading uh, to read through some of these books at the same time. You'll, you'll get more out of the, um, the messages that way. So... Um, we're, we're going to go back to this very first part, the, the section about David. So David doesn't really occur so much in First and Second Kings himself. He really, uh, his life is told in First and Second Samuel. So we're going to be summarizing huge sections of First and Second Samuel this morning and trying to understand how that all relates. The promises of Abraham were that um, through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. There were other promises given as well, but that's the one I'd like to focus on that uh, David's going to fulfill. And uh, so in, in order for us to understand why the name David is so important in Scripture, we're going to look at three aspects of, of uh, David's life. Um, David's early years, David as king, and then David as an ideal. So um, David's early years, David as king, as David as the ideal king. So David's Early years might be broken into two parts. Uh, David rises and David runs. Uh, so uh, under David rises, we first are introduced to David in 1 Samuel 16, where David gets anointed as king. Now, there are some problems with this. You see, there's already a king named Saul when David gets anointed, and David's young. He's not the, the firstborn who would be normally chosen for something like this, and yet... Uh, Samuel is instructed to go and anoint um, one of the sons of Jesse. And so First uh, Samuel 16, 6 through 12, describes Jesse bringing his sons out one by one in front of Samuel. And Samuel's uh, supposed to uh, find out which of these seven sons God has chosen. So Eliab was impressive, and this is out of First uh, Samuel 16, uh, Seven, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. 
The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so not Eliab, not Abinadab, not Shema, or any of the rest, Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answers. He's out tending sheep. And Samuel said, bring him in. We're not going to sit down until he comes. And so uh, Jesse sent for him and had David brought in. David was glowing with health, had a fine appearance, handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And on that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And on that very same day, a spirit of affliction came on King Saul. So that's one story in David's past that describes his rise. I'm going to uh, share another one with you that you're already familiar with. It's from 1 Samuel 17, uh, the story of David and Goliath. And most people remember the physical parts of this story. Um, David was a young man, fought a giant named Goliath. Uh, King Saul uh, offered David his armor, and David couldn't fit in the armor. Instead, he chose a shepherd's weapon, uh, a sling, and a stone, and incidentally, this isn't the slingshot that we think of. It's a sling that you kind of uh, take over your head and can fire a rock out at a high speed. Um, and so, uh, so David goes and fights Goliath. Those are some of the physical um, attributes of what took place prior to David defeating Goliath. But do you remember the words of David and Goliath from 1 Samuel 17? This is from 1 Samuel 17, 43 through 47. Goliath said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll, fe- I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. So these two stories, the story of the anointing and the story of David and Goliath, show one big truth. David had a huge heart for God. That was That can describe David's rise as, as a young man. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, 8 summarizes it. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, after the battle with Goliath, people looked up to David. And Jonathan uh, and David, so Jonathan, Saul's son, the king's son, became best friends with David. Uh, but King Saul became increasingly uh, jealous of David and tried to kill him. And there are chapter after chapter after chapter of this describing David running from Saul, Saul trying to kill David. And uh, what comes next um, is a couple little vignettes of David having an opportunity to kill Saul while he's running away. And so in uh, 1 Samuel 24, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself while he's pursuing David, and David and his men happen to be hiding in that very cave. And so David's men are urging David, kill him. It'll be done. 
and you can be king and we can be done running away and, and all these sorts of things. But in 1 Samuel 24, 6, David responds, the Lord forbid that I do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. So Saul tries to kill David again and again, but David won't kill Saul because he has been anointed as king by the Lord. David has a huge heart for God. Even though his life is threatened, he's not willing to do this, this action. So whether David is rising or David is running, his heart for God shines through. Now, looking at David as king, Saul and Jonathan were eventually killed not by David, but by the Philistines. And, uh, and David became first king over the southern king, uh, kingdom of Judah, and then eventually over the northern tribes as well. And on one hand, we could describe David's kingship as a, a king with a heart for God. When, uh, when Saul and Jonathan died from the Philistines, David grieved over the death of uh, God's anointed. And when David heard Joab murdered Abner in 2 Samuel 3, David grieved over the injustice. On the other hand, when David brought the ark of God into Jerusalem, representing God's presence, entering God's city, David danced with all his might before all the people. This is the king of Israel. In his heart, David loved what honored God, and he hated what dishonored God. And that's why he grieved over the death of people who should be his personal enemies, and why he danced shamelessly before the Lord. Now, in 2 Samuel 6.22, David's wife, Michael, despised David for dancing before the ark and before all the people. And David told her that he would make himself even more contemptible in her eyes if it meant celebrating before the Lord. So David had a big heart for God as, as king. Now, if David was such a great king, then what's the deal with Bathsheba? The story of Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11, David slept with one of the soldier's wives, Uriah. Uh, the wife's name was Bathsheba. And then he covered everything up by having Bathsheba's husband killed. And we ask, well, how could this great king, a king after God's own heart, do such evil? And then David's son Amnon raped uh, Tamar, so that, um, one of David's other sons, Absalom, murdered Amnon and later tried to forcibly take David's throne. And you think, what kind of a father was David? All this stuff's going on with his children. So as king, it turns out that David sinned in some very large ways. And we ask ourselves, so what happened to this man after God's own heart? Um, David failed as king. He failed his husband. He failed his father. He failed his friends. And all of those failures, along with his successes, are recorded in Scripture for all of us to read. We can't get away from the fact that David was far from perfect, and we're not meant to. What we are meant to see is a pattern of sin and repentance. So David wrote in Psalm 51, by the way, David wrote many of the Psalms in the Psalter, but he wrote this uh, in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And he's speaking here in specifically about the situation with Bathsheba. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, obviously, David sinned against Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba and many other people as well, but his ultimate sin was against God himself, and he recognized that. We say, well, what kind of a king was David? He was a sinful one and a broken one but a repentant one that sought God's forgiveness amidst his own brokenness. And this leads us into the Davidic ideal. So if the third aspect of David's life is David as the ideal king, uh, we have considered David's character before and during his kingship. How do we know that David is the ideal king of the Old Testament? Say, well, how can he be the, old, the ideal king? He's messed up in many different ways. Why would we say he's the ideal king? Well, one compelling reason, uh, besides the fact that his name is mentioned 1,078 times, uh, another reason is that David is the king that all the other kings get compared to. And so Solomon, for all his wisdom and accomplishments, actually failed the David test in his old age. Here's what's written in 1 Kings 11:4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon failed the David test in his old age. He did better when he was younger, but he, he slipped up. And then the kingdom was divided after Solomon. So Israel became the divided kingdom. The northern tribes were then known as Israel, and the southern tribe of Israel was known as Judah. And it turns out that uh, in 1 Kings 11, God told Solomon he would tear the kingdom away from his sons because of Solomon's idolatry. 1 Kings 11:13, 13, God, God promised this, though. I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, whose name is Rehoboam, for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And so God is honoring David there. And then to Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, who ends up being a real rascal, First uh, Kings 14.8, uh, you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. So these are comparisons, and the pattern continues. Uh, 1 Kings 15.3, Rehoboam's son Abijam did not have a heart like David. 1 Kings 15.11, Abijam's son Asa did not uh, do what was right like David. 2 Kings 14.1, Jehoshaphat did what was right, but not as well as David. 2 Kings 16.3, Judah's king Ahaz did not do as David, but was evil. You get the idea. We could continue, but it goes on and on. There's all these Davidic comparisons, uh, and each of them was considered good or bad as they're compared to David. So David was the ideal, and for centuries, this went on, on and on. Uh, did they act right as my servant David? Did they have a heart for God? Did they repent? Um, so it's clear that David is the ideal, but we ask, why is David the ideal? Um, Clearly, David's name shows up again and again. Clearly, other kings are compared to him. But why do we have to have David as our ideal king? Is it because of his heart for God? 
Or is it because that he's willing to repent? Are those things enough to make David the actual ideal king? And it turns out, no, that was, that's actually not enough. Uh, it wasn't because of his righteous heart. It wasn't because of his repentance. All those things were all factored in. Those things are very important uh, for us to understand. But the answer actually lies in 2 Samuel 7. It was a long chapter, which we heard read earlier today. 2 Samuel 7, David uh, wanted to build God a house. So David uh, finally comes to a time of peace and he builds this palace of cedar and, and uh, he's really happy with it. And then he looks over and he sees the ark of God is still in a tent. And he becomes sort of disgusted with himself. He thinks, how can I be building my own house when there is God's house? And look at it, it's still a tent. And he, he comes up with this idea that he wants to build a magnificent temple for God. He wants to build a place where people can worship God that's greater than this, than this tent area. And, and so he goes to the prophet Nathan and, and explains the situation. Nathan says, you should do that. And then the word of the Lord comes. He said, no. You're not going to do this for me. That, that job of building the temple is going to belong to my son, uh, to your son Solomon. That's not your job, David. You think you're going to build me a house, but I am going to build you a house. David's going to build God a house, but God said, no, I'm going to build the house of David. And in, uh, in 2 Samuel 7, 16... God promises David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David responds in 2 Samuel 7, 18. Uh, King David went and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So here's the crux of the matter. If, if the Davidic kingdom had been, um, had been established solely on David himself, on his heart, on his repentance, on anything that David had done, it would not have lasted. It just wouldn't happen. But that's not what it was founded upon. The, the house of David was founded upon the promises of God in 2 Samuel 7. And so if you remember that redemptive thread that we keep on talking about, it flows from David to Solomon to Rehoboam, through the good and bad kings, through uh, Zerubbabel, to the father of Jesus, to Jesus Christ. That's where that thread goes. And so David's, the promises to David would become fulfilled in Jesus. David was God's anointed, given a promise by God about an everlasting kingdom. And then Jesus was the ultimate son of David. And if you look at that 2 Samuel 7, 19, the promise of God to David, this is instruction for all mankind. That's how, that's how David sees this. This is, this is not just about Israel. It's not just about the kingdom of David during that era. It's something that's going to happen and it's going to become bigger than this. And that's why we read Matthew 22, 41 through 46. This is the scripture printed in your bulletin. The Pharisees come up to Jesus and, uh, and they're, um, 
they're asking him questions, they're sort of testing him, and, uh, and then Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And so Jesus said to them, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one could answer him because Jesus was somehow the son of David, and yet he was greater than David. It didn't make sense. But David had a big heart for God. Jesus had the heart of God. David was chosen by God. Jesus was the son of God. David repented when he sinned, and Jesus was the basis for all repentance. Jesus is how repentance works. David was the chosen king, and Jesus was the king of kings. And so these are the truths that our series, Kings and Kingdoms, stand upon, but they're also the truths that we must stand upon. So the Davidic ideal for us is in one sense the same. Do we have a big heart for God? And by a big heart for God, think about you know facing Goliath, the Goliaths in our lives, where there's, you know, it looked like certain death. But David was willing to say, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And what sort of difficulties might we face that we would have a heart for God that would trust him through those difficulties? That God might say, I look after that person's heart. It's not about the outward appearance. It's about their heart for me. Or Repentance. Uh, the fact that, that David again and again went back to this, uh, this repentance. Uh, we all mess up. We mess up and sometimes spectacularly. Sometimes I, I, you know, I, I look back and I think, how could I have even been thinking the way I was thinking or doing what I was doing? And, and then I look back and I say, you know, I, obviously I need to confess this is wrong. I need to turn from that sin and, and just you know, ask God's forgiveness and trust him in it through, through Christ. Well, that's repentance. And David did that again and again. And so um, we stand on those promises too. That, that, that hasn't changed. Um, but the promises to David in 2 Samuel 7 are really interesting because there's this promise of the Davidic kingdom that stands on the promises of God, but we too have received promises from God. We have received promises that Christ is David's greater son, that if we um, believe in him, if we trust in him, if we put our, our if our sins upon him and we trust him for our salvation, then we receive, we're, we're entering into the kingdom, the kingdom of God, everlasting life. And so in, in one sense, uh, as we follow the trajectory of David, this redemptive thread, we see our position here, not just the position of the kings, not just the position of Jesus, but we see our own position and, and our own choices and how and the difference that that's going to make. And so um, if we pull this redemptive thread just a little bit further, um, and, and we'll just simplify, we'll say the word Christian means little Christ. It means that we're going to be Christ-like. We're going to follow Jesus as the ultimate son of David, and our lives are going to be held up that way. And if, if, the, if God was going to write another inspired work and our name was to be in it, how would we be held up? Um, he or she did what was right in God's eyes, not because of a perfect life, but because he or she followed Jesus. 
What would be said of us in that? What would be written about us in the account? Good and bad things. We've, we've all done things that we're ashamed of, and we've done things that we're, we think that God might um, commend us for. But at, at the end of the day, did, did we love God? Did we repent of the wrongdoing? Did we seek after God in such a way that it might be written of us, well done? They did what was right by following Jesus. And so, um, we'll, just, uh, we'll just leave with that, with that thought here. And maybe it's, a, maybe it's something that we can uh, seek after the Lord in prayer in the days ahead. Uh, God, um, as you're helping me write the details of my life, let it be said of me, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, please bow your heads with me. Father, uh, thank you for... Um, for your word. And uh, as we get into this series, I'm excited to see what you have for us. Um, I pray that you'd help us to see the threat of redemption in the Old Testament, that sometimes we hear that the Old Testament's irrelevant, or uh, there are things in there that, uh, that just don't seem to make sense. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant clarity to us and how, um, how Scripture relates to not only our Christian faith, but also to our life uh, day by day. And, uh, and Lord, also, as, uh, as, as we spoke of, just prayed that you would help each of us uh, to cooperate with your Holy Spirit in such a way that, that, uh, that we see um, our lives being written out in a glorious way, that, uh, in a Christian way, in a way that, uh, that is fitting for children of the King. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.